Growing up, I loved PBS. Full disclosure, I still do. One of the images burned into my memory from watching the station is the shooting star with the rainbow tail and the words, the more you know. I always felt like this was just the beginning of the statement. The full statement was, the more you know, the more you grow. Well, I grew tremendously in my conversation with vegan chef, food activist, and author, Bryant Terry. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. I'm so excited. Like, this for me is a big deal because I have been vegetarian since I was 16. And back then it was not popular. It was not the thing to do. It was not the it factor. I remember when I first heard about you and your story, you were talking about how eating healthy was incorporated in your family. It was just, it was what you did. And you chose, because we are, you know, when we get to high school, we want to do what we're do. We want to do and be around and and kind of assimilate. You chose to go that route, and I felt you one hundred percent. So that's the age I actually chose to go vegetarian. I was in high school, mm-hmm. so our stories are polar opposite. But I want to start off by saying this: you are a filmmaker, an author, a chef, a speaker, a food justice advocate, a lover of music. You are a storyteller. But most importantly, you're a father and a husband. So I would be remiss if I did not wish you a happy 12th anniversary. Oh, I appreciate that. You know, I think that when I think about everything that I do, being a family man is the most important thing that I'm doing. And everything else I do is because I want to have the freedom to be able to spend time with my wife and my girls and just like live our best life. Another level of kinship I feel to you was when I heard you speak about your influence. Now, my grandmother had 12 children. So you had to kind of get in where you fit in with the grandchildren. And my level of attachment to her was through cooking. In her home, she had this huge... It, it seemed like a grocery store and it was all this fresh food and all of these grains and nuts and beans because not only did she need to feed her family, she had to have things in bulk to have enough to feed her family and grandchildren. Can yeah. you talk to me a little bit about how your grandmother um, led you on this journey to healthy food? Well, I talk about uh, my maternal grandmother and my paternal grandfather often because I always say that everything I've been teaching and attempting to impart to the masses over the past two decades, I learned growing up in my family. And like many um, Black folks in the South, my family has uh, roots in the agrarian South. And, you know, they moved to the city, Memphis, um, when they were in their teens. And of course, they brought with them the agrarian knowledge and the survival techniques and the desire and understanding of the importance of growing one's own food. In fact, my uh, paternal grandfather used to often stress to me that if you rely on other people to feed you, when they decide they don't want to, then you'll starve. And so he had more than a, a backyard garden. He had an urban farm, like every bit of available space in his backyard was being used to produce various vegetables and Uh, fruits and, um, you know, they had some chickens and hogs back there at one point. In terms of the seat the table cycle, learning about, you know, how to uh, plant food and weed and tend it and, 
you know, bring it to the point where it's ready to harvest. Uh, I learned so much of that from my paternal grandfather, but then my maternal grandmother, I learned so much about cooking from her. And, you know, it wasn't necessarily direct instruction. A lot of it was just through observation. I mean, osmosis, if you will, just being Mm -hmm. around her and kind of soaking up her energy. And I feel like I bring all that spirit to uh, the work that I do. And, you know, the tricky thing is that I write cookbooks. And so uh, people who, especially people who are kitchen novices, they need very specific uh, instructions and very precise measurements. (laughs) But, you know, intuitively, uh, I like to cook like my grandmother cooked. And that's just vibrational cooking in the spirit of uh, Verda Mae Smart Grosner, um, you know, just really using your energy, kind of eyeballing things, you know, picking. I don't think I ever saw my grandmother use a measuring cup or a measuring spoon because she just knew exactly um, how much needed to go in by um, Mm -hmm. her intuition. I think knowing that they're going to give you this big bountiful plate because that represents how much they love you. And, and that's how you see it when you're a small child. Grandparents normally don't skimp when it comes to grandchildren. And and I when I would watch her cook, just the smells of the food, mm-hmm. watching, you know, the, the greens soak up all the water, just all of these things, the stories that would come with it and the seasonings, all of that felt like love. And then Definitely. when you ingested it, it felt even more. It was like a full, full body experience from the, the smells to the taste. And, and it just felt like a warm hug. So whenever I eat food that my grandmother would prepare for me as a child, it really does feel like a warm hug. It definitely does. And, you know, the thing that I think um, our families often do, even if uh, unconsciously, is when they're feeding us, they're passing down culture, they're passing down history, they're passing down memories, they're passing down stories. And I think that as an adult, especially as someone who, you know, studies and um, has been working in this field of food for two decades, I'm very clear that they were you know, showing me how to eat to live, um, mm-hmm. in the words of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad with his um, mm-hmm. two-book collection uh, that talked about, um, you know, eating and, and kind of African-Americans rejecting the standard American diet. But, you know, my grandparents, like, I think about this reality that we live in where so many Um, you know, Black people are suffering some of the highest rates of preventable diet-related illnesses, heart disease, hypertension, type 2 diabetes. And I really get upset when people vilify Black cuisine as somehow the culprit to um, this public health crisis. Um, I I think, if anything, we should be keeping our eye on the standard American diet, the the highly processed and packaged food culture that uh, we live in, and the, the number of stressors that contribute to uh, chronic illnesses. But I, I want people to remember that, you know, when we look at the foundational foods, the core um, things that Black people have uh, grown and cooked and eaten, we're talking about nutrient-rich, dark leafy greens like collards and mustards and turnips and kale and dandelions and other foods like black-eyed peas and sugar snap peas and pole beans. Okay. I mean, these are all the, mm-hmm. the healthful, these are the type of foods that I think any, you know, physician or nutrition or dietitian <laughs> would say that we should all be eating and these are our Mm -hmm. cultural foods so I think that it's really about uh remembering piecing back these histories and knowing that uh, we already have the keys to our uh, better health and well-being and we just need to you know embrace and uh, prepare our cultural foods in a way that's um, healthful and life-giving 
you just made me so hungry. <laughs> like, it is definitely time for lunch. I want to ask you, how would you describe the intersection of food politics and poverty to someone who doesn't understand how all three are connected? I think it's important that people recognize that, you know, we live in a a, a country, in a world where, you know, so many people are not afforded the basic human right to healthy, fresh, affordable, and culturally appropriate food. You know, something that I think about often is the fact that, you know, uh, up to 80% of the people who are working in our food system, you know, the people who are in the fields, people who are in the, the, the back of the houses of restaurants and the kitchens or the front of the houses, you know, waiting or working in, um, you know, supermarkets, 80% uh, of the people who are working in our food system, ensuring that we have the most uh, abundant and diverse food supply, people, 80% of these people are dealing with hunger and food insecurity, oftentimes not knowing where their next meal will come from, you know, not having access to healthy, good food, but actually having a diet that's replete with a lot of fast foods and, and packaged foods because it's cheaper. And so what I need to, what, what I, what I encourage people to understand is that, you know, the reason that our food system um, looks this way and has an impact on people, um, everyday eaters like you and me, is because of choices. These are choices mm -hmm. that our government makes. These are the, you know, the, the subsidies that a lot of the big corporations that are producing the worst foods, you know, they're getting so many subsidies that actually allow them to uh, provide communities with really cheap food. And, and so I, I, don't, I would never shame anyone for going to a fast food restaurant and ordering from the 99 cent menu, because I understand the factors that play into that. But I also uh, think it's important that we all recognize that those, you know, there, there could be decisions made to actually invest those subsidies into small to mid-sized farmers, into community gardens, into urban farms, um, into um, helpful food staples so that people could actually eat, um, you know, healthful food more cheaply and not feel like they have to spend a lot of their income just to eat, you know, the, the kind of life-giving food that we should all have easy access to. And so as a result of these different policies over, you know, the past several decades, so many communities just have barriers to accessing healthy, fresh, affordable, and culturally appropriate food. You know, a friend of mine, um, when I was more rooted in grassroots activism, once told me that a community that he worked in, you could find a, a gun faster mm -hmm. than you could an organic apple. And we know that there are a lot of, um, you know, barriers to people living in historically marginalized communities to accessing good food. There are economic barriers, there are geographic, there are physical barriers for people just to get good food. And so I think it's important that we all understand that, you know, while I might be able to access whatever food that I want on any given day, the reality is so many people don't have that um, choice. And mm -hmm. we need to be working not just to change our own kind of personal reality when it comes to food, but also ensuring that, you know, our communities, the people who we live near, whether they're like living next door to us on the other side of town, these are our community, you know, members, people in my community aren't doing well, then whether I think I am or not, I'm, I'm not doing well. well. And That's so right. I think we should all be working for the betterment of everyone in our communities. And that takes 
you know, investing our time, investing our talent, investing our treasure into the work that's already being done. People in communities know what problems they're facing. And oftentimes they have a lot of brilliant solutions, but what do they need? They need more resources and power shifted into their hands so they can effectively do the work. And we need to be putting pressure on our elected officials and making sure that they are creating policies in the best interest of everyday eaters like you and me, and not the multinational corporations that are often sending their lobbyists to um, make sure that they're making policies in their best interest. Can you tell me three items or three dishes that most people would not be aware comes from African cooking? Sure. Uh, I could start with a food item that people, many people have every day, and they probably have no idea that its origin is on the African continent, and that's coffee. You know, I think a lot of people have this idea that coffee is from South America because it is a you know region that produces a lot of coffee, but coffee actually uh, originated in Ethiopia. And so um, a friend of mine, Keba Conte, who has a coffee company, Red Bay Coffee, he talks about coffee being um, Africa's gift to the world. And so I um, just remind people that when you're having that sip uh, of coffee in the morning, you're uh, you know tasting one of the most important fruits that have uh, that has come out of the continent. Uh, Black eyed peas, I think, is something that people often, you know, certainly associate with um, uh, African American cuisine, but um, that is um, a staple that was brought to uh, the New World by enslaved Africans. Um, what's another one? Okra. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, I'm from the South and okra is pretty ubiquitous, whether it's in gumbo or, you know, fried. Um, or dehydrated and kind of eaten as a snack. Um, a lot of people like okra and okra is another um, staple food that comes from Western Central Africa. So, um, you know, these are our gifts. These are things that we've shared with the world, but I think it's always important to um, acknowledge the origins and ensure that we're uplifting and celebrating not just the food, but the people who actually, um, you know, gifted this food to the world. If you were cooking a meal for someone who has never eaten a plant-based meal, what would you cook and tell me why to try to win them over? Uh, You know, I will say that as of late, the thing that I've been uh, making to kind of wow people who might not necessarily be into plant-based cooking is um, this uh, vegan blueberry cheesecake in my latest book, Black Food. Uh, The cake was created by, the recipe was created by Malcolm Livingston III, this uh, chef based in uh, LA. He used to be part of the Ghetto Gastro Collective. And um, it's just a brilliant dessert. And mm. I think it's one of those things where, you know, people have these perceptions of, you know, ve- uh, vegetarian and vegan food being just bland and brown and boring. And I like to um, ease people in with things that, you know, are familiar but they may not know that you can have it in a, a plant-based version and it could rival the, the one that isn't. I was telling you a little bit about my journey. And at 16, I used to, I went to an arts high school. So in the fall, I would eat more meats, you know, because it would get cold here in Wisconsin. And in the summer, I would eat very few meats. And eventually I went to not eating meat at all. So when I went back to school, the fall that I became vegetarian, I got really, really sick. And I thought, what was happening? This was a normal thing I would do, seasonal eating. Um, But then I realized the people that I admired, 
outside of my family member, uh, the MOVE organization, the Panthers, the NOI, um, Bob Marley, all of these people ate plant-based meals or promoted plant-based meals. Mm -hmm. And then around that time, something started to happen in hip-hop. There was a cultural shift. There was Com and Erica Badu. Um, even now we have Styles P with his vegan juice bar. His, his juice bar. Mm -hmm. And you have Angela Yee. You have all these people now promoting this holistic lifestyle, even Kevin Hart with his vegan restaurant. Mm -hmm. Why do you think this is so important? Because those people, I know why they were important to me. Yeah, Those people looked like me. They wanted what I wanted in life. They wanted to be successful. They were artists. I mean, even Bob Marley said their bellies are full, but they're hungry. Mm -hmm. And I think I've even heard you say that, mm -hmm. you know, when you're talking about mm. watching little um, children on the subway eating these, you know, chips in the morning. Why do you think having these images out here of artists are so important and, and ha having those artists display what they eat? and how their lifestyle is holistic food to the community that doesn't necessarily hasn't necessarily been won over to plant-based eating. Well, I think it's important that we um kind of visualize the ways in which we're eating that's in alignment with uh the way in which many of our ancestors ate. As you mentioned, there is this thread of Black-led food and health activism throughout the 20th century going into the 21st century. You know, mm -hmm. my first contact with this idea of, you know, vegan eating or vegetarian eating came from Black Seven-day Adventists um, mm -hmm. in our community. And then later learning more about the ministry of, uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier, the Nation of Islam with um, Elijah Muhammad's How to Eat to Live. It wasn't necessarily, he wasn't necessarily calling for a vegan or vegetarian right. eating, but he was calling for a rejection of standard American diet and an embracing of more like whole foods, more real foods, more um, foods that, you know, we've traditionally grown and eaten. Um, we could talk about people like Dick Gregory. We could talk about, you know, as mm -hmm. you mentioned, the Rastafarians with the Itao diet. And so I say, I mentioned all these examples to say that, you know, there is, we're standing on the shoulders of people who have come before us. So this isn't new. Like there's this paternalistic notion that black people need to be taught how to eat well. We know how to eat well. And, mm -hmm. and, and we know that, you know, there are, um, are reasons why so many of our communities are dealing with food apartheid where, you know, you people don't have access to affordable, um, healthful and real food. And so I think the work of these this new generation or this younger generation of people, um, many arts and cultural figures who are you know, really uplifting plant-based eating as a tool for better health. I don't necessarily think that eating a vegetarian or vegan diet is the, the panacea or the perfect diet for everyone. Mm -hmm. We're all individual. We all have different needs. We all should be thinking about, as you mentioned, eating in season, you know, um, eating what's growing in, from the earth at that time. And there's a growing body of research that makes it clear that a plant-centered diet can be very powerful and, um, ameliorating the symptoms of many chronic illnesses, and in some cases, reversing chronic illnesses. In the case of type 2 diabetes, people who are pre-diabetic or, you know, have recently gotten type 2 diabetes and have shifted to a plant-based um, diet, oftentimes are able to reverse that. And so I think we need to know that um, we have much more control over um, our health. And it's not just about like our genes, it's about, um, you know, 
really understanding that we can make choices that will actually give us um, uh, more more life, more longevity. And um, it's exciting to see that a lot of Black folks are making those choices. In fact, uh, there was a recent study that showed Black people are the fastest growing population of vegans in North America. And um, I think that's encouraging. Be Discipline, healthy, all those things. Be healthy, be healthy. right? <laughs> 